welcome to this week's edition of the BetterRivals.com. Whoa, we just made ourselves we a, website, a website, the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And uh, man, we uh, it's an emergency podcast. We're coming at you a couple days early because um, stuff is happening. Things are happening. Uh, w- ledges are Our being pets walked on. Heads are falling off. Our pets' heads are falling off. Mass hysteria. Dogs and cats living together. Um, basically, we went from zero to one hundred real quick. <laughs> and I was sitting in a movie theater watching La La Land for a second time, figuring out if my opinion of the first time was was justified. It was good, not great. Still very good, uh, but not great. Ryan Gosling is lucky he's pretty. Uh, because boy, is he a terrible singer, and uh, at least in that movie, not so great of an actor. And, and all of a sudden, my pocket just starts buzzing. And I mean, I'm getting like, and I can tell the difference between a text and a tweet. And I get a text, and then I get like two or three tweets, and then I get a text, then another text, and then another two or three tweets. And I'm like, <laughs> oh god, like, and, and it's near the end of the movie, and I'm thinking to myself, oh dear, sweet baby Jeebus, Kyle Shanahan pulled out. Like that's what I thought. I thought Kyle Shanahan said he does not want to be the head coach of the, of the San Francisco 49ers. And then I get the movie ends. I get to my phone. I read the news. And the first text message I have is from you, David. <laughs> Let me see if I can find it because it was pretty funny. Um, <laughs> yeah, oh, goodness. But yeah, it was uh, I had a strong reaction, maybe. Um, it was it was it was. And I and I quote here. Can you, oh, okay, kids, earmuffs, but I mean, this is a reaction <laughs> pod, so I mean, you're going to get it. Sorry, y'all. Uh, so it's, can, I, I think someone put the the fuck count, I think, on the show at like over, under something. <laughs> I don't know what it, it was. It was probably exactly, low. But, yeah. Um, the, the, the exact text string is, can you fucking believe this shit? John fucking Lynch. Uh, JF, Jesus fucking Christ, I'm so fucking done with this team, dude. I hate everything. That was the the four texts that I got from David <laughs> when I found out that this was going to be uh, our new general manager. So, um, yeah, it's been an interesting couple of days, and we've gone back and done a little bit of research, kind of calmed down a little bit, take, taking a look at some stuff, and and we've got really th- this is going to be our reaction show, and we thought that no one would be better to handle some of this reaction with us, but what what Mr. Dan Hatman, who was on the show. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, talking about general manager candidates, it was a really, really fun interview, um, and an interview that I that I learned a lot from, and, and I know that some of the the folks who listened to it uh, learned a, a bit from it as well. So we decided to have him back on, talk through some of the John Lynch stuff, and we'll we'll play that interview for you now, and then we'll we'll have some more of our personal reactions after the interview. So uh, here we go. We'd like to welcome Dan Hatman returning again for another go around here at the Better Rivals Podcast, Dan is the director of scouting at the Scouting Academy, a course that both David and I are enrolled in. And Dan has been with several NFL franchises working in their front offices. Uh, He's been with three different franchises. Dan, it's good to have you again. We we mentioned it earlier, but uh, hopefully you can talk us off this ledge. Talk us off this big, glorious John Lynch ledge. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm happy to do it. Uh, So, Dan... You know, one of the, the, the first questions I think that we really got is, is how out of the blue is a move like this in scouting and general manager circles? Because this obviously comes as a surprise to most 49ers fans, but is this also a surprise in the scouting community in general? Or did everyone kind of look at each other and say, oh, oh this is all right? 
Uh, no, in talking with executives around the league today, there was absolutely surprise for them across the board, and in some cases, uh, frustration. Yeah, that that's I, I saw your tweet earlier, and and I guess the frustration really stems out of just the fact that there there are people who've been working for this for years and years and years, and you know Terry McDonough was obviously one of them, George Payton, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, comes a star horse candidate who has zero experience whatsoever. And, and he's been anointed effectively the, the rebuilder of said franchise here in, for the 49ers. Yeah, and it's it's tough because it, the path is not a knock against John. I mean, ultimately, the owner decides which individual best embodies what we're trying to achieve. And Jed uh, has clearly tapped John on the shoulder in terms of that. But for everybody else, it's in this business where you know you have somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 or 30 maybe plus staff members through scouting operations cap what have you the vast majority would like to sit in a big chair someday and there's only 32 of them uh, to see someone jump the line so badly you know this is the equivalent of being at disney and you're you know you watch someone just absolutely walk right up to the front and snap onto a ride you've been waiting you know hours to get on he's got that fast pass apparently uh that, that direct line straight to <laughs> straight to kyle shanahan now, what do you know, if anything, about uh, John Lynch? Obviously, you know, we, we know what we know based on watching him call games. But is there anything that you've heard through your contacts or through any people that you've talked to over the last, you know, 12, 24 hours? You know, some people are, are very open to uh, positive and negative uh, negative comments about people um, where they'll be open and say whatever's on their mind. Some people play a little more politically correct and usually just try to steer towards the good things or ignore questions if they're bad. Uh, but in talking to different people, again, this is a situation like when Chris Ballard got the job over in Indy, that's someone that in asking about him around the league for the last 18 months or so, I, I can't find someone that has a bad thing to say about him, capabilities, intelligence, what have you. Um, now, not everybody was as familiar with John or had the same relationships, but in asking some people, again, very, very positive things and usually around intelligence and communication. And not just because he was on TV, but because he, he has communication skills outside of that setting. Some guys can turn it on, you know, and they can go call a game for three and a half hours. But in terms of putting together the rest of the picture, um, people were not as excited about communication. John didn't get that feedback and talking to people he he got very much you know there's a reason why he went to stanford and rightfully so and can communicate you know and has the trust of you know some really good potential employees around the league so let's talk a bit about the structure specifically when it comes to san francisco because there's there's a couple of questions i think that that both david and i have really about both how the organization of the power is really shaken out but then also the uphill climb that someone like lynch is going to have really in a, in a new franchise and a new role with zero experience. So I guess the first question is what kind of struggles will you expect the new general manager to have in rebuilding a roster and rebuilding a team when that individual has no front office experience? What kind of challenges do you think they'll see? You hear a lot about the people that have moved from the playing side or even those that may have had some opportunity to do some NFL type uh, coaching that have eventually come over to the personnel side talk about that separation between the locker room and the front office and you do want to have a good culture and you do want to have trust and you do want to have that family team buy-in atmosphere but at some point for the gm 
you're going to have to move on from players. You're going to have contentious salary negotiations with players. Um, you know, I wouldn't say you're not allowed to, but it generally isn't a positive to have great buddy-buddy relationships with your players. And that's something that we'll have to find out where John is on that. You know, has he been able to? Because as he's going to prepare for games, he's continuing to build sources. He's continuing to build relationships with individuals around the league. And if he keeps that going, that could be a detriment. Uh, If he keeps those, like I said, really tight-knit relationships going with certain players. And then secondarily, one of my big soapbox points is there's a difference between evaluating players and understanding capability and valuing them in a market. And that second piece, understanding how much to compensate a player or what resources to give up in terms of the draft in order to acquire a player or a pick is just something he's going to have to lean on other people for. He just hasn't done it. You know, he admitted that he reached out to Kyle, what, seven, ten days ago, you know, and even in his press conference today, said something along the lines of didn't know I'd have this job even two weeks ago. So he hasn't been spending years preparing for all the nuances of it, um, but mainly that he's coming from a football background as a smart guy, and hopefully he can aggregate data from the people around him and make good decisions. So how much of that that process kind of concerns you? So that's, I think, one of the things from where we're sitting that makes this kind of a a difficult thing to accept or at least have like a strong kind of negative reaction to to it initially is that you look at how we ended up with Lynch, right? Even kind of respective of his abilities and, and how well he might be able to to do in this role because, um, you know, especially from our perspective, like we don't know. We don't know a lot about these jam candidates. There's not uh, a lot that we get to see from our perspective. But you look at kind of what happened with this organization getting there, right? It's like, okay, initially you're hearing Chris Ballard is first, second, and third choice. And obviously, um, you know, that doesn't work out. He doesn't want to... Um, even really interview for the position. Same thing with Josh McDaniels. He, he ended up interviewing, but it was, again, first choice there. They end up missing out on both of those guys. And then coaches start kind of peeling away, taking other jobs, and you're left with, uh, even though I think, you know, I, I was very happy with Kyle Shanahan, and, and I think that he could be a very good head coach, but it, you still kind of end up where you're like, okay, this is the only reasonable option that we have left. And it kind of seems like that's the case with Lynch is like, they they started going through a lot of these candidates, and then now all of a sudden we're giving it to a guy that uh, essentially volunteered for the job two weeks ago. So th- does the, the process and how they got to John Lynch concern you at all, or is that not really a, a big part of the picture for you? Well, the process is uh, kind of confusing from where I said, because again, we started with nine candidates. Not just where you sit, that, Dan. I think it's confusing for just about everyone who's <laughs> watching it. Well, you, so you started with nine candidates that agreed to interview and their teams, um, because of the nature of the position, originally formatted as a control of 53, um, had to let them go interview. So we, you did lose a couple like Chris Ballard off the top that didn't get themselves in the mix. Nick Casario didn't interview, things of that nature. Um, from there, once Josh McDaniels pulled out, that was absolutely the tipping point in this because that then paired their candidate list down to those that either had a relationship with Kyle or that they felt they could build a relationship 
with Kyle. That seems to be really critical. I I keep likening it to the Kansas City model where uh, Andy Reid had a long-standing relationship with John Dorsey. And so the second they walked in the room, they were ready and prepared to go through the large variety of decisions that need to be made in situations that you're going to be presented with. Because every day is a little different. Um, some of them feel like Groundhog's Day, but at the same time, you're constantly putting out different fires and chasing things. Uh, you know, you may think that you have your coaching staff intact and all of a sudden assistants start leaving or scouts start getting opportunities, uh, things of that nature. And you're, you're trying to build and rebuild and edit and adjust the whole way through. And you just can't prepare for all of those with someone in a short period of time. Like, you know, if I meet someone... A month ago, we might be able to build a little bit of a relationship. We can't prepare for everything a GM is going to have to handle. So that's going to be uh, something for consideration. And it seems very much like Jed and Prague, that was very important to them. Let's find people that have a pre-existing relationship. The hope then is they don't have to work through all of these situations fresh. Hopefully they have some things to build on and work from and go from there. And that's where the Terry McDonough's and the George Paytons seem to have separated themselves as they had those relationships. And I think that's why the Green Bay staff members started to back out was it didn't seem like those were going to come together quite the same way. And so to go through that and then <laughs> within the last week you're preparing. So when Atlanta wins and they go into the Super Bowl mix and they're preparing, you know, doing the game plan stuff and they set Kyle's interview or Saturday, Friday night or Saturday, whatever it was going to be, you were you were preparing for those interviews, and all of a sudden you get this new candidate coming in with two GM candidates that reasonably thought they had a 50-50 shot, that this job was mine and had been preparing for it and working that path. And then, again, to have that kind of pivot so late in the process for him was um, very confusing for him. Like I said, I keep using the word process, but it didn't quite um, – didn't quite make sense but then when you start peeling back the layers and you start seeing how that relationship between kyle and john you know has been and the people that keep advocating for how it can be strong i still don't see like the years of working together like an andy and john in green bay type situation um it's a little closer maybe to a pete carroll and john schneider um but at the same time that seemed to be a priority for them and they pick someone they feel smart and capable and uh, good communicator according to all reports and off we go so one of the things that is interesting is how the the control of the roster is kind of breaking down now so far it's been rumored uh, i believe jim trotter reported that uh, lynch is going to have control of the draft free agency and the 90 man he's basically going to collect the pieces and then shanahan is going to have control of the final 53 this is a little different than it's been in the past in San Francisco. Of course, Trent Baalke had full control of the 53 uh, from Harbaugh through Chip Kelly. And, and I guess the, the, the question really is, how common is this kind of structure? Because it seems like most everyone thinks you either have control of the 53 or you don't, and that's that. But this seems to be kind of a mesh in the middle, where Shanahan has final say over the final 53, but the pieces that get collected, of course, are going to be collected by, by Lynch. So... What What is your kind of intuition about how common that structure is and whether or not there's one that's preferred over the other, especially when you've got a first-time really front office employee who's running the show? I I think it's more common than we're all giving credit to it, um, where you're starting to split some of these things down the middle. The, the model of hire a GM 
and he gets to work through two coaching staffs without being put on the hot seat. And maybe that's six years, maybe that's eight years or what have you, or obviously if they do well in perpetuity, and that person has control of every single thing and the coaches just report to, that model's gone. It's, it's, it's not going to be in existence across the majority of the 32 teams for the foreseeable future. Where we're headed is join at the hip. You're going to start seeing up-and-coming coordinators and up-and-coming executives getting with each other earlier, working with each other through agents ahead of time, working through these questions, basically picking out who I want to work with long ahead of time and selling themselves as pairs to teams as opposed to individuals who earn the job based on merit. And I saw an interesting comment today that, it se- you know, the, the, the comment was, it seems like Jed put fit above skill. And I guess my, my caveat to that was I'm not opposed to that, assuming that we're not talking about like a big standard deviation away in skill. So like if we were going to talk about two players and they were talking about two linebackers and there's a small difference in ability, but one is a better fit culturally, a better fit schematically and what have you. And the other player we're going to have to make a lot of adjustments for. We're going to have to get him support off the field. We're going to have to hire security staff to take care of him. We're going to have to babysit him, do all these things, but he's just a little bit better. More people are going to want to take the safer guy who's not that different is a better fit and hits the ground running with no other issues. No other resources need to be um, put into place to take care of that player. So that's a one um, parable kind of related to it. But so coming back to the model of who has control, we're going to start seeing these guys line up ahead of time. We're going to start seeing them split these things down the middle where the biggest piece is getting that 53 control can help you as the, the team acquire the GM candidates, right? Because the team can't block one of their executives from going to interview for a GM job that has final control, which is that 53 piece. So if it wasn't John, if he wasn't coming from Fox, if it was, you know, Terry McDonough or whoever, and they didn't put 53 on the table, my understanding is Arizona could block Terry from taking that job because it's not a final 53 job. It can have whatever title you want, but it has to have that piece contractually built in. So we're going to see a little bit of playing around between you know those lines so that both of these people, the GM and the head coach, are tied together. They need to be philosophically aligned. They need to have that fit from day one. And then when you get rid of one, you probably get rid of both. You know, I know we just saw Chuck Pagano make it through a firing and get paired with the new GM. Uh, we've seen that with Lovey Smith and Phil Emery. We saw it with Rex Ryan and John Idzik. Um, I'm not sure we're going to see as much of that in the years to come. I think we're getting closer. You see John and expectedly Kyle are supposed to get these six-year contracts. They've already split who gets what. They're going to start building their staffs. And, I mean, who knows if they'll get all six years in. But my guess is this pairing, if one goes, both go. Now, you talk a bit about the people and the staff that's going to get built out. And I think... Really, the only way that this is a resounding success off the bat is if someone like John Lynch ends up surrounding himself with really, really great people that give him great information that allow him to then, you know, kind of build off of that. We've already seen some names begin to leak out. The most common one that we saw was Mark Dominic. Um, And then you've got maybe you mentioned the connection to Dennis Hickey because he was working with Dominic at the Senior Bowl, which is where he just spent your last week. 
We've heard Shelton Quarles, who was a teammate of Lynch's in Tampa Bay, Fritz Pollard, who's currently with the 49ers. Uh, And then the most recent name that came out about a half hour ago is Adam Peters, who is currently relatively well thought of in Denver, climbed the ranks there, and is now the top target. He's actually already been granted permission to interview for a top personnel gig here in uh, in San Francisco. So what do you know about these candidates? Um, and, and of the ones that we've mentioned, who would you say are the maybe the, the kind of the, the cream of the crop, the ones that rise above the top? Well, you have two former GMs, a pro director and a college director in the mix of that four that you're laying out there. And that doesn't include Tom Gamble, who to my understanding is still under contract in San Francisco. That's correct. Um, and depending on how they want to play that out in, in respect to, to Tom and what's best for the organization, he could be around as well as someone to help. Um, cream of the crop is hard because I don't know all of these people individually, their capabilities. Um, Dennis Hickey was very well thought of, uh, you know, supposedly up and coming. Uh, some people argue that he got the Miami job a bit earlier than some would have expected, and then that turnover that ultimately led in him coming out and Mike Tannenbaum coming in really didn't have necessarily a ton to do with Dennis, but more so that Stephen Ross, the owner, wanted to go with Mike Tannenbaom. Um, Dominic had a full run in Tampa. I uh, got to hire a couple coaches and run a few drafts, so he has vet- gone through all of that. Shelton's been a longtime pro director, um, respected in that capacity. Adam's kind of unique. His name just came to me probably three months, four months ago, somewhere like that. Uh, as I started diving back in on my research for potential GM candidates and things of that nature and, and poking around it, um, who might be in the in the upcoming waves, you know, not necessarily the, the next crop because we saw the Elliott Wolves and Chris Ballards and those guys uh, move through that, but who might be on the, you know, need to be on the radar. And Adam came up two or three times from different people. Came up through New England, actually went with McDaniels to Denver, stayed there after the transition, rose to the college director position. Um, people are you know, seem to be very high on him. I haven't got a lot on ter- in terms of capabilities or who he is in the office or scouting acumen or things of that nature just yet. Um, but again, a lot of positivity around him. I would imagine Adam is not leaving Broncos as the director of college scouting, which in their organization is arguably the number three role. Uh, I just looked, and it is going to be player personnel that Peters is interviewing for, which makes sense. The player personnel has been, become that number two role for many people. So I'd imagine if he's going to leave a cushy number three for a team that's got some pieces in place, it's most likely going to be because he's going to a number two somewhere else, which is then intriguing. It, can you acquire a Dominic? Will Dominic come in and do what Phil Emery and Rusty Webster just did in Atlanta and go to National Scout? And just go back to the grind, go back to the work, um, fall in love with it all over again, and not necessarily be in a decision-making place. Where that kind well, of how do they structure seen. in Atlanta? If there's so many general managers, do they, is it like a, a kind of flat? There's something to Dimitrov bringing on people like Billy Devaney and bringing on people like Scott Pioli and Phil Emery um, and the Rustin Webster. So there's four former GMs that Dimitrov added to the mix. So it's it's Dimitrov is the one, Pioli is two. A separate individual is the college director. And then Rustin and Phil are national scouts. So they're boots on the ground. Um, they're, a, they're a notch above your area guys, but they are not director level. And that's a model that Howie Roseman used in Philly. Phil Savage worked as a national scout for him. Greg Gabriel did. Tom Donahoe did. 
Um, so it's not completely unheard of. So it's intriguing to me. Like, if you bring Peters in and he's your number two, Tom Gamble, who's been mostly in college, I assume you find a way to keep him in for the year. If Shelton came over as your pro director, and then guys like um, Dominic and or Hickey went in as national scouts, you know, that's that's when you're putting all the eggs or all the people in the right seats on the bus and, and finding a way to fit them all in there. If Dominic wants to be number two, that might block Peters. You know, I would imagine these things have been vetted behind the scenes before they all got leaked to some degree. So if you're talking about someone like John, where we're going to assume for the sake of the conversation that his football acumen, his intellect, his ability to see the broader landscape and build, let's say that those are on the table or, or can be harnessed in some way, then the question is, does he have the domain experience to work through these other things? Well, guys like Dominic and Hickey have been in that chair and will certainly understand it. And then again, people like Shelton and Tom Gamble and Adam Peters, depending on how many of those five they actually bring to San Francisco can certainly help leading departments bringing in actionable information so that John can make appropriate decisions. Uh, now, what's funny is that David is not a huge fan of Mark Dominic based on a very, very rough just kind of sketching of some of the players that he's that he's drafted in his five years at, in Tampa Bay. His classes were not yeah, overly just gonna, impressive. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like, what your thoughts are? I mean, just and again, haven't really done a ton of research, but I mean, just kind of flipping through some of the drafts that he had, and and obviously they just in general weren't very successful during his time there. Um, and I think the the overall principle is if you if you got fired, there's usually a reason. The question is, did you did you take that, unpack it, and improve your weaknesses? Now, I'm I'm probably one of the more vocal voices in former GMs should have a seat back at the table in some way. Like, I, I'm not sure why we marginalize that group to the degree that we do. We certainly don't do that with coaches. You know, if Mike Shanahan wanted a job, people would be excited to bring him on. Well, he's he's been booted from, like, three different head coaching jobs for different reasons but people would still be excited about bringing him in. And I'm not saying that makes him good or bad. I'm just saying that's the way we view coaches. Um, we're very, very open to allowing them to learn from their mistakes and come back. We don't seem to apply that on the scouting side. I think when you talk to the guys at the very, very top, it wears on you because you, you're you responsible for not just you and your family and your decisions and what have you, but you're responsible for that 150 people I talked about. They all could lose their jobs. Their kids might have to move. They might be in, having to figure out how to sell their house and find a new gig. And I mean, not 100 people don't leave every time a GM gets fired, but it's possible that any of them could if a GM gets fired. And for some of those guys, it just wears on you a lot. And again, you get yourself in a situation where, you know, I used to do X, Y, and Z. That's the reason why I got the job. And now all of a sudden I can't do those three things because I don't have time and I'm delegating them. And those are the things that used to make me unique. And now I'm doing all this other stuff that I never really had experience with. Um, so when I see a Phil Emery, you know, at the Senior Bowl, full bearded up, he was a clean cut guy in Chicago, full bearded up, just out there working it, eyes on the field the whole time, grabbing a beer afterwards. Like sometimes it's just nice to go recharge your batteries and figure out where in this whole crazy mess my real niche is. You know, maybe I don't need to be a GM again. Maybe the best thing for me is to go, you know, be a national scout or go be a college director and just get back into that thing that made me great and I can make good money and I don't have to move my family and things of that nature. So, you know, it, 
I, I don't know. Like I said, looking objectively at the, just the results of Tampa Bay, did not shine a, a, a bright light on Dominic in a positive manner. Um, but I don't know what the last few years have been like for him. And if he's gone around and met with different people and seen different ways to do things and tried to continue to learn more. I mean, he had a upbringing through guys like Jerry Angelo. And if you listen to Chris Ballard today, who is the hot candidate, just landed the indie job, he spoke glowingly of Jerry and how he taught him how to work this business and do this right. And Dominic has a similar education. Um, so it's just kind of funny how all these things manifest. So one of the things that I, uh, you know, is kind of sitting here listening to all of this information, right? And it's, um, you, you talk about John Lynch and the strengths that he has right now are probably the the communication piece. And then obviously the intelligence kind of this ability to uh, in, you know, communicate a vision, right? And kind of set that vision. And then obviously it seems like he uh, has at least some ability to kind of attract some talented people, right? A lot of the names that are getting thrown out, um, as you mentioned, are are fairly well regarded and, and and everything there. So if you have this guy that again, doesn't have any experience, he's never really done anything, you know, similar to this type of role, he's going to need a lot of help early. He's going to need to surround himself with a lot of good people. Um, you know, I think somebody, I forget which report it was, I think it might've been uh, Mayoka that said, you know, they're looking for a quote unquote personnel expert. Um, if you need all of those, additional pieces right for him to be able to succeed and and obviously nobody does it alone everybody needs uh kind of that support system around him but it seems like lynch too is going to need that to an even greater extent why not just hire the personnel expert or or hire the person that's effectively going to be kind of running things until he can can really learn the job and and have him slide into uh, i guess more of a, a a vp of football operations i guess is you know, when you hear that term, and maybe this is something that you can kind of clarify as well as a, a distinction between those two type of roles. But it seems like when you have VP of football ops, it's it's kind of this grand overseer, right? I'm going to be um, the guy that establishes the vision. I'm going to make sure that's communicated down to every level. And, and I'm going to kind of set the tone for the organization. But I'm not really going to be the one that, that kind of carries out the day-to-day work and uh, really does that grind. There's a lot that ends up on the plate, certainly, or could potentially end up on the plate of the individual with the, the final title, whatever it is, GM or uh, vice president of football operations or however they label that position. And yeah, we see a few different models. We see heavy delegation models where an individual is going to focus heavily on maybe college scouting, which was their background, the thing that got them in that chair spend a very high percentage of their time in that realm and allow their pro staff and cap staff and coaching staff to execute their verticals. And we just philosophically align at the top um, and and really work together to uh, smooth out any rough spots. We see models where the individual wants to take all of the the high-level 30,000-foot, making sure that the uh, organizations set up the way I want, you know, working with the strength staff, working with the equipment staff or video staff, or making sure we have the right coaches in place and preparing for contract negotiations and doing all the high-level stuff. And again, delegating the scouting pieces back down to their individual verticals and, and aggregating that information in order to make decisions. So at the end of the day, the the idea that the GM can sit there and do all of it and do it all at a high level 
just it just doesn't work. Uh, that individual's going to get burned out. Their things are going to fall through the cracks. They just don't have the time to do all the things in the way that they would probably like to do them. So I go back to advice I received uh, through an intermediary from Joe Moglia. And Joe's an interesting guy. Joe's at Coastal Carolina as the head coach now. Former CEO of TD Ameritrade. Took it from bankruptcy out of a top brokerage house. And there's a lot a lot more to Joe's backstory. But the long and the short of it is he's a very, very smart man. Very process-oriented. Very much gets it. Has done helped multiple organizations improve in and out of sport. So uh, there's something there. You know, there's objective evidence he's done the right things. And... Joe says that you got to be very self-aware in that you need to determine what it is that you have to get an A on. What is the expertise that you bring to the table that if we don't if I don't get an A on that, we're not going to be successful. Period end of story. And that's where you want to focus 90% of your time. And if the the other areas where you could potentially get a B or a C and we'll survive, you delegate those and you get that off your plate and you get that in someone else's hands and obviously we don't know exactly john's philosophy or how he wants to set this up or even who those senior lieutenants will be but it's plausible to me much like when they built the cleveland model last year around sashi brown the argument was sashi is a very intelligent capable human being who can take all this information weigh it against each other objectively without bringing a lot of bias to the work particularly from the scouting side because he's not going to be heavily invested in his own evaluations. He can take the the evidence presented to him by his scouts objectively, look at that against the market, look at that against the cap, look at that against what the coaches want, and ultimately make a decision that's best for the organization. And it's very idealistic, and I, and I from a logic perspective, as you follow it through, it seems to make sense that if everybody else does their job underneath it, if you find them, develop them, and equip them to do it well, and they bring you actionable information, you objectively look at it, limit bias, and make proper decisions, well then, yeah, good results should come. We'll, you know, reigns to be seen what's going to happen there in Cleveland moving forward, but you could see something like that in San Francisco where John recognizes, okay, here's my domain experience, here's what I can get done well, here's what I need everybody else to do well, you go do this piece, I'll look at what you bring me, I understand football enough to tell me if it's BS or not. And then from that, I should be able to make effective decisions. That's the the positive potential outcome. Well, I guess the the final question then that I have for you, unless, David, you've got one, is is really about the, your final read on this whole thing. You know, when, when we talk about success and failure, I think one of the, the biggest takeaways I took from our last talk is that being a, that there's different ways to skin the general manager cat. And there are some that are very, very much, you know, kind of tape grinders and scouts. There are some that are more CEO. There are some that, you know, travel all over the place and go visit players. There are some that, that, le- that leave that to their lieutenants. Um, and, and so there's various ways to make this go. And, and so my, I think my big concern here is that he doesn't know what he doesn't know because he's not been in the front office to to a really kind of substantive and actionable degree yes apparently he spent time with denver in the war room um and and pat bolin offered him a job a couple of times because he had an acumen and he's friends with john elway but my my worry is that he doesn't know enough to know um really what to do with such a massive kind of organizational undertaking and and so I guess from what you know, and obviously it's it's a conjecture on all of our parts here, but from what you know, from the people that are rumored to be potentially having a job in the front office 
and and what you know about what it takes to really be a general manager. What do you think is your read on this whole situation? Do you think that the pieces are there for him to succeed? Do you think this is like, wow, it's a long shot that he's too far of a standard deviation away from what is a competent front office individual? Or do you think, you know, who, who knows? It'll be an interesting experiment and we'll see where it goes. Tough, um, tough question because a lot of it, like you said, is conjecture. I think the hard part is that if you're going to interview someone like John for the job and the, the questions that you could possibly ask that would extract from him what he knows about how to identify players or how to build teams, he's been boots in the ground with these different places. He's seen different practices. He's seen different methodologies and, and roster construction from the outside perspective. You're in for a couple of days. You're out. You talk to a few people. Um, and that is great exposure. I always say that one of the best things that happened in my career is I worked for three different teams. Seeing those things in and out were huge. The one thing I will say is that I was in the building from lights on to lights out in each of those situations and got a deeper understanding about how all those mechanisms worked as opposed to one, you know, coming to practice for a couple times, everybody put their best face on. So let's, for the sake of conversation, assume that he's got the football acumen, Stanford educated guy, understands the game. He is equipped to evaluate players. We'll take that as our, our, our assumption, move it into this. The biggest question for me is to your point, the areas where he does not have exposure, how can he properly vet and acquire those that can equip him to understand that if he doesn't understand it himself? Uh, I happen to go to uh, and get an MBA, and you know, that in pursuit of wanting a bigger job in football. And one of the first things they tell you there is we're training you to be in management. And what we're going to do is we're going to teach about all these different verticals that are going to work underneath you, how they all operate. You're not going to be an expert necessarily in any one of them, but you're going to know enough about all of them that you should be able to vet them, uh, vet candidates for them, make sure that they're uh, functioning appropriately, uh, so forth and so on. And so that's kind of the big question for me right now with John is if he doesn't necessarily understand how all those other pieces come together, and that's, an, again, an assumption that we're making, he very well might. But if he doesn't, how can he properly put, surround himself with those that do? Because we have seen people that were longstanding uh, executives in the league finally got to the GM chair and were unsuccessful for whatever reason. You know, Just being in the league for 30 years doesn't make you good at it. It's okay. Uh, you just, can say Matt Millen. <laughs> well, that, that wasn't exactly where my head went, but you know, we we have seen those people be unsuccessful. So I think the the piece for me, and obviously this is the one that makes or breaks the whole thing for me. It's not a few players, it's not the coach that's already locked in, but it, it is these other moves. So I would assume Parag is is fully locked in to continue their strategy in terms of implementing the cap and and functioning on contracts or, or whoever is going to be underneath them therein. And John's going to have to just kind of roll with that. He hasn't seen that function anywhere else necessarily. Um, and so those kind of things over and over again, all those pieces better line up because at the end of the day, you got to get 150 plus people working 80 hour weeks to put one team on the field on Sunday. And the GM's job, no matter how you construct it, is to know how to put those 150 people in the right spots 
to identify them, to prepare them for those roles, to set up the expectations for them in those roles, and then see that through. Again, if you're going to delegate it, you're going to micromanage it, that's neither here nor there, but you better know how all those things are going to come together, and that's what's going to make or break the whole model. Awesome. Well, Dan, thanks again for another great conversation. Uh, you can always follow Dan on Twitter. It's at Dan underscore Hatman. Uh, Dan, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks for coming on. And uh, we'll probably ping you again if we got any other general manager questions because these are always a lot of fun. Sounds great, guys. Awesome. Thank you, man. So, David, did did Dan appropriately walk you off the ledge or are you still... Well, I know exactly how you feel, but but how how do you feel? Did, did he mollify or assuage any of your concerns through that interview, or are you just still in the same place where you're like, you know, internet shrug, fuck this shit? Um, I, I maybe a little bit, I guess. I I think the things that are a problem for me um weren't really things that we can be sure of, right? Or like that he could really touch on a whole lot. So, I mean, I think there, there's certainly something to be said about um, one, again, we don't know these candidates very well, right? We, we, we really don't. We've talked about this multiple times now. We, we don't know them in terms of their skills and what they're bringing to the table and all of these things, like how qualified they are for these roles. Um, we, we just don't have a great understanding of that from the outside. So that has to be set off the top. Um, and two, one of the things that Dan has really kind of stressed to us throughout both of these interviews now is that there are multiple ways to do this, right? There's not one right answer. There's not, you have to, I mean, he mentioned it, that, that it's this um, setup is basically dead in the NFL with maybe a few exceptions that have still kind of been hanging on. But the, the idea that you have this kind of all-powerful general manager, everybody reports up through him, um, and he's kind of, uh, you know, essentially like the Belichick figure here. I think maybe like Ted Thompson might be somebody that's kind of in that mold right now. And, and you just don't have a lot of those guys. And that's not how things are trending. So there, there are multiple ways that you can go about piecing this together and, and having it all work. My problems with it have less to do. I mean, some of them have to do with Lynch. Like the, the, the inexperience is a is a huge factor. I think that's um, really going to be a problem. I mean, the, the the valuation versus evaluation thing is really what makes or breaks general managers, right? Like that's such a huge thing. And even though he may be proved to be a good evaluator, um, he has zero experience whatsoever in valuing that talent. Um, well, let's let's unpack a couple of those things, right? Because I think these are some of the key things that that bring alarm bells to us that that we're concerned about with John Lynch specifically. And and I think where you know, if you're looking for kind of an official line, at least for me, it's on face. The decision does not look good. The process is definitely screwed, but that still doesn't mean that it is by definition or inherently that he is going to fail. Right. Like you, you hope for the best, but there's there's not much about this profile that that leads you to believe that it's going to be, you know, a home run hit right off the bat. And and we asked Dan a little bit, you know, in the interview and, and he said something very similar. He's like, look, we don't we don't know. But as long as he is comfortable not knowing what he doesn't know, which is in and of itself kind of difficult to do, um, then then you might be OK. And we, we talked about if you didn't listen to the episode last time with Dan, he talks a lot about valuing and evaluating players. Very roughly valuing um, is basically how much that player is worth in the market, what the opportunity costs are, you know, how it is that you, you, know, you know you have to pay quarterbacks more, you know you have to find a quarterback that's that's different than evaluating players, just figuring out how good they are. A good general manager does both. And John Lynch was 
interviewed immediately after his press conference tonight. And John Middlecoff tweeted this out, talking about really the, the valuation part, which is what David is worried about. Here's what John Lynch had to say about negotiating contracts, which is by definition what you do when you put uh, you know, a dollar amount or a value on a player. Uh, and, and here's what he had to say about, about this specifically. I know what I don't know. I haven't negotiated a lot of contracts. Fortunately, there's a guy in the front office there, Barag. Help me out. Barag there. Right? I'm just meeting everyone there. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time with them. But Parag's as good as it gets in that facet. And, you know, and so I'm going to rely on him. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think immediately a couple takeaways. Doesn't even know the dude's name, uh, number one. <laughs> and number two, he's definitely going to rely on Parag in order to do the proper valuation of players, which I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think as long as his control and Prague's control ends there, and, and this is the problem, right? It's, it's kind of this idea of scope creep. It's where does Prague's scope end? If John is able to say, yes, you're going to help me negotiate these contracts, and that's it, that's actually that, that may not be a bad setup because that's one of the things that he can do well. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I don't know. So a lot of this reminds me, and, and, and certainly not to the extent, like not to the same extent, um, but a lot of it reminds me of the, the Thomas Sula thing, right? Um, and everything with him, like the initial reaction was, we don't know anything. Like a, a lot of people out there were like, you know, you, we don't know what this is going to be like. We got to wait and see. And and sometimes, yeah, that's true. I mean, again, the the things that we can say for certain about anything in this game are very, very minimal. So there's always this element of uncertainty. But you still have to take the information you do have available right now and and try to make sense of that in a way that you, in the best way that you can essentially and and there were a lot of signs you know when you look back at Tom Sula there were a lot of very clear things that you could point to before his hire at that time that says this isn't a good idea and this is more likely to fail than it is to succeed and if he does end up succeeding because of that element of the unknown that that's an upset that's a that's a thing that we shouldn't expect to happen based on the available information and i i feel the same way about Lynch right like Right now, the things that we have uh, for him that are that are good, right? The positives that everybody's pointing to are the communication and the intelligence. Um, and and I just don't see like, yes, that's absolutely part of it. But I feel like Jed effectively went to the complete opposite direction. It's like it's like the the general managers that have a defensive coach that fails and they feel like they need to go get an offensive coach or vice versa, right? They need to look for the complete yeah. opposite of what they had. This is exactly what he did chose the exact opposite guy of Trent Baalke. And I just don't know that a lot of the other skills are there. Like it, it's just, um, it's, it's concerning that you need to have, I, I think at the point that you need to have all these other people, right? You need, um, Parag to be the, the valuer of players, which is, I would argue the single most important part of that role. Prague needs to do that. Then, well, he doesn't have a whole lot of player evaluation experience either. So we need to hire a personnel expert to be kind of the number two in charge and he's really going to handle like a lot of that personnel stuff early on and it's like at what point that you need all of these other talented guys just hire the one of those talented guys like what is it that john lynch is doing there of any substance to earn that title yeah i guess the the only counter argument that i could have and, and i'm not i think i'm more i'm a little bit more wait and see on this than you are but i i think the the only thing that I could say is that there are that there is 
your question about John Lynch being the vice president of football ops, I think made a, makes a lot of sense to me because I think of someone like Mac Brown at UT and he was kind of the CEO head coach, right? He's not a schematic based head coach where he was like going to drive the offense or drive the defense. He was going to hire good people and let them do work, which is the thing that, that Jed York should be doing, but Jed York seems incapable of being able to do that. So if he's able to hire someone like a John Lynch who can communicate a, vi a vision, can bring people together, can hire good people based on his relationships in the league, and, and he can effectively do that, yes, you call him a general manager, but in, in true reality, maybe he is the, the VP of football ops. He's hired some good people, an up-and-coming you know, person who was rumored to be uh, on the street to a GM and Adam Peters. Marate, you know, maybe he is the, the leaky faucet, but, you know, we can and do have an absolute boatload of cap space because we have not overspent in or made a lot of really dumb deals uh, in, in free agency or really with re-signing or extending players. So that that is definitely something that he can do well. Maybe that is maybe that is his role. That becomes his role. And Shanahan's going to have control over the 53. So you won't have to make final cut day decisions because Kyle Shanahan's going to do that. So maybe even though he has the title of general manager, you get this weird amorphous structure where he really is the VP of football ops. He's put other people in a place to succeed. And, and because of his ability to bring people together, that, that ends up shining because you're right. Jed York did swing the complete opposite way. And Trent Baalke was someone who did not communicate well. He was abrasive. All he wanted to do was sit and watch film. And, and now he is getting someone who looks to be about the polar opposite. Yeah, I, I think if it works out that way where he is general manager in title only and in terms of actual role and actual responsibilities, it really is more of that kind of, you know, grand overseer, so to speak, um, I, I think it becomes a little bit better there. It, and again, this is all assuming that he can get the right people, um, which is is a big question mark because, again, not to... And I don't think... I, I think Lynch's chances of succeeding are far greater than what Tom Sula had. Tom Sula was, was really... Um, I mean, it was going to take a fucking miracle for that dude to turn well, things we around. We also had a lot um, of data indicating... Or not indicating, but you had a lot of leading indicators because of the research that you did, right? You were yeah. able to look at a sample subset of coaches and say, you know, this is where they're at. And and we haven't done that research yet with general managers, but the, the sample sizes are indeed smaller over time because generally general managers keep their roles for quite a bit longer and there's less turnover. And they also, to Dan's point, don't get rehired all that frequently. Um, and, and so you, you think of someone, you, really the examples that you that you jumped towards that I saw all over Twitter were the examples of Matt Millen and, uh, um, oh, God. John Elway? Oh, who's the, uh, there you go, John Elway. Yeah. Um, and, and those are pretty much it. But the, the differences are going to be that, and then Steve Kerr you get. But, but John Elway Steve and Steve Kerr, Kerr, for one, are not front. great. Like, they had previous experience. It may not, exactly. may not have been at... Uh, the NFL level, um, you know, in, in terms of, of John Elway there, but he, he at least had had some practice. He had been thinking about these things. He had been preparing himself for that sort of role. And Steve Kerr was the general manager, uh, I think, in Phoenix before. Yeah, and he, he was great. So, he was fantastic yeah. there. Yeah. So th they have actual experience in front offices doing what it is they need to do. John, John Lynch legit said two weeks ago, I did not know I would have this job. Two weeks ago. Did not know I would have this job. Um, you know, so you think of that and you think of Matt Millen, 
and everyone knows, of course, Matt Millen, you know, Matt, what is a wide receiver? Millen uh, is basically the person who, you know, he's 0 16, man, 0 16 on your watch. That's not nothing. Um, and, and that's really, I think the stuff that people point to other than, you know, what you said earlier, which is that he's smart and he's a good communicator. Um, but those, those, those may be enough, but who knows? And the other thing that, I mean, and, and this, uh, certainly isn't up there in, in terms of uh, a lot of the other points that we've made in terms of importance, I think, but, um, there are other things that just kind of leave me with, uh, with this bad vibe about him. I mean, um, you look at what he did as a broadcaster, right? And it's like everybody, and, and it wasn't just me that kind of thought this, cause I pointed this out during, uh, I think it was the Seahawks Falcons game, actually this playoffs was that, uh, John Lynch had made a point about the Seahawks not being a zone running team when Marshawn Lynch was there. And he, he, he very much gave the implication that this was like a new transition that the team had made since Marshawn Lynch had gone away, which is absolutely 100% not true. Um, and it was just kind of strange to hear this. So you, you have on one hand, this guy that everybody, one of the first things out of their mouth when they talk about him is he's a very intelligent guy. Oh, did you know he went to Stanford? Like, it's it's like Ryan Fitzpatrick. Have you heard he went to Harvard? Um, and you point this like, out, but uh, then he fails to get these kind of like basic things wrong or right time and time again in his broadcast. And that to me, like, and I think it was Ben Muth who writes for Football Outsiders. He was uh, a former offensive lineman at Stanford. Said like that just kind of sh- points to me that he's lazy. And and, yeah. it, and if you're not, it's not willing that he to can't do that identify homework, it, it's not that yeah. he doesn't know it. It's just that he's lazy. Yeah, and and like uh, Chris Brown made a similar point uh, at one point during the playoffs during that game. So uh, I mean, there it wasn't only me. So that's pointing to that, like looking for something negative. It, it just again, it's it's another kind of red flag that's out there. That one again to reiterate, much lower on, on the totem pole than some of the other points that we've made. But there are just a lot of these little things that kind of you, you point to like that um, that just don't really make a lot of sense to me. The one thing that I was that I found interesting about the the whole discussion around him was just this idea that, oh, he was coached by Bull Walsh at Stanford, as though that is yeah. some kind of Midas touch. <laughs> uh, you know, as soon as you're coached by by Bill Walsh, then all of a sudden you're going to be awesome at your job. Um, and, and that's just not true. Right. One, I would say, remind me of all of the lessons you learned about being a college professor when you were a college senior and how you've applied that in your job right now, you know, 15, 20, 30 years later, um, because, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But two, again, I love Bill Walsh, and we all do. We're 49ers fans. You know, he's one of the greatest coaches in NFL history, but he also handpicked Terry Donahue as general manager, right? Terry Donahue of salary cap hell fame, who basically, you know, imploded the team in 2003. And, and it's not that, you know, it, it basically he was the reason that we went through football purgatory for so long. And then it was kind of perpetuated by Jed, you know, just because you're picked by Bill Walsh to do something, or just because Bill Walsh saw something in you does not necessarily mean that you were going to carry that throughout the rest of your career forever and ever and ever as though you're going to be some sort of football God. No, he was coached by a fantastic coach. He probably learned a thing or two, and he's probably learned a bajillion more things since then that have made as big or bigger of an impact throughout his career. So let's not kind of hang our hat on this whole, oh, Bill Walsh coached him. Let's just leave it at that. He had one season under a great coach and let that be that. Yeah, I mean, this this connection to the past thing that that Jed continually puts up, but then everybody like it's it's the, the same idea of like, 
oh, we need to hire Steve Young or one of the other players that used to be great for the 49ers and bring it back. It's like, no, they need to figure out how to move this forward. Like they need to figure out who is actually qualified for this job now and can bring that there. Like that stuff's not coming back. Like everybody's like, oh, the return of the West Coast offense with Kyle Shanahan. And it's like, yeah, I mean, they use the same terminology, which I'd actually don't like, like which is is really kind of proven to be overly cumbersome and and absolutely not the most effective way to communicate that information unnecessarily complicated um and but beyond that like this isn't what bill walsh and in montana and rice were doing in the mid 80s like it's not the same like everybody like there are principles of what they did that literally every single nfl team uses the short passing game is fucking west coast right like the west coast offense isn't coming back the things that are there are ingrained in every offense and beyond that the game is different now it's just not how it works um and and so like i i just the this connection to the past thing that everybody is just craving uh is like it might sound good in theory it'd be great if it worked out that way and steve young came back and led everybody back to glory but it's just not a realistic idea so one of the things that i thought was interesting about the, the narrative that's been coming out about John Lynch or really not about John Lynch, but about the job and the promotion was, was really, it came from Matt Millen. It came from the guy that we were just talking about a little earlier. And he was asked, you know, kind of his advice for, for John Lynch. And he said specifically, you know, the, can you get everyone on the same page? Can you handle the politics? If you've got that, you're fine. If you don't have it, then it'll turn out the way it turns out. Um, you know, you need to be taught, you need to be mentored. You need to have somebody you can go to. And that's not easy. Dan said some of the same stuff, right? Those were his kind of closing thoughts about John Lynch. And he was like, you know, can he surround himself with people that are going to help him figure out the things that he doesn't know? And if he doesn't know them, how is he going to be able to qualify that those people are qualified to give him advice? Yeah. This to me is the thing that gets Jed York is that he doesn't know good from bad. I do think, and we've said it time and time again on this podcast that he is well-intentioned, but if you don't know how to identify good from bad for any given thing, then you won't know good advice from bad advice. And if you don't know good advice from bad advice, and it's no advice at all, it's none whatsoever. And if people keep continually giving you bad advice, then you can't really end up figuring that out, especially if you end up having a really close bond with them, which is what happened with Trent Balky and, uh, and, and, Jed, and Jed York. Trent kept giving him, in effect, bad advice, and he couldn't figure out what the source of that bad advice was and time and time again, it was like, oh, man, got to fix that. Oh, man, got to fix that. Oh, man, got to fix that. When in reality, it was more than likely Trent Balky who was just feeding him a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, I mean, it's it's frustrating to kind of deal with and, and to see, like, it, it's it's so easy to to paint this picture to where it's, like, going to end up. Like, everything else has ended up over the last three, four years now with this team. Everything since Harbaugh. Um, and, and that's part of why, like, uh, I saw somebody that tweeted at Fooch. God, I'm so glad I don't get uh, comments like this on a regular basis. But somebody was like, trust the process um, about it. It's like, no, that's the exact part that we don't trust. Like, and there's no reason they, they've done absolutely nothing to to show that we should trust that process. Right. Like it's continually been a bad process every single time they've done this in the last few years. And uh, they're, they're just kind of throwing shit together and hope, hoping that it sticks. And I, I don't know. It's just uh, it, it's frustrating. So if, you're, if you're rebuilding this process, like if you're if you're saying I'm I'm giving you the timeline of events, reconstructing it like a crime scene, because it's effectively what this feels like. Um, 
I think Dan alluded to it earlier, but it seemed like the tipping point was McDaniel's bowing out. It seemed like all like all of a sudden the Niners zeroed in right away on Ballard and McDaniel's, or McDaniel's and Casario, or McDaniel's and Riddick. It seemed like it all was around McDaniel's, and then at some point they're like they're like oh GM head coach oh, it doesn't really matter it doesn't really matter but they had their sights set on McDaniel's. Then for one reason some GMs kind of bow out because they, because they never want to be a part of the process like Ballard. Some bow out a little bit later when they realize they're not going to get the gig. Then McDaniels bows out. And now, you know, really all that's left is Kyle. And you're like, all right, then it's whomever Kyle wants at this point. And it's whomever Kyle wants. Kyle gets 53. And again, they may stumble across two good people for this role, but that's not a process. Like that, that is, that is the antithesis of a process. That is the illusion of a process so that you can make it seem to other people as though there is one so that you can be, oh yeah, there was a process. There was a process. No, you zeroed on a couple people, plan A, plan B, plan C, and plan D all fell through. You're left with the only thing that's left, which is more than likely your second place coach, which I still think is going to be a great head coach at some point, maybe even if not in San Francisco. Um, and, <laughs> and then you're left with whomever it was that he picked as a GM. Like that's what you're left with. I just love the change in reaction to from uh, we're getting Kyle Shanahan and then like, oh, crap, we're giving Kyle Shanahan full control of the 53 man. Like, is that a good idea? He's a first time head coach. Like, should we really be giving that much power to? Oh, we're bringing in John Lynch now. Oh, guys, it's going to be totally fine. Kyle got final control over the 53. OK, it's <laughs> it's going to be fine. Don't worry. Um, and it, and it's just like, again, the same thing. Like, I I agree with you that I think um, Kyle's very clearly a talented guy. And, and I think that he is going to find success as a head coach at some point, even if it's not uh, on on this particular stint here. But um, again, he, this is the first time he's doing any of this as well. Like, why should we trust his opinion that he knows what he's looking for yet? He's never gone through this process either. Right. So, like, you have a first time head coach going through all of these things for the first time you have a first time gm who's not even just a first time gm he's a first time working in football from a front office perspective like never done anything else prior to this and those are the two guys that you're hoping have all of the answers to turn this thing around and and i just um is as much as i hope that it works and uh you know as much as i I like Kyle. Like I just, it's, it's really hard to paint that positive picture right now. And for me, I think it's, it's, I do hope that it does work out. And the things I think that buoy me are bringing someone like Adam Peters over from Denver. I I think when I hear names like that, I think that's where I get a little bit hopeful because when I hear Mark Dominic, yes, I, I think that his experience as a GM is good but the outcomes when he was in Tampa Bay, not so much. And so I don't know. I do think that people can learn and people can grow, but I would like to see him surrounded by other people that have been a part of really, really good processes um, and have been able to implement them or at least be kind of in that up-and-comer realm so they can say, hey, maybe you should do this, maybe you should do that. That just kind of is a personal preference. But if Lynch is indeed able to surround himself with a cadre of really, really smart, really, really good people then, you know, I, I do have some hope for what this could look like because I do tend to like 
the concept of the head coach having control over the 53-man roster. I, I thought it was a little weird where a general manager who, especially when that general manager doesn't talk to the line-level coaches, doesn't talk to the DL coach, doesn't talk to the linebackers coach, ends up making final decisions about who is going to be there on, you know, on the final 53. And it, I think Kyle does and has had experience saying this type of player, player fits what I want to do, this type of player doesn't. Um, and, and he may not know draft capital acquisition. He may not know contract negotiation. And unfortunately, neither does John. But at the very least, I think what he can do is say, I need these types of players for these roles on my offense. And when I have them, I'm going to make sure I keep them. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, again, the, the the idea that hopefully they have kind of this unified front and this unified vision. Um, I mean, the, you know, we talk a lot about the who has final control and who has power over what. And in the best situations with the best organizations, like, that doesn't matter because it's a, it's a collaborative effort, right? Everybody plays their role. It doesn't come down to, no, I'm making this decision. Fuck everybody else. Like, this is this is how it's going going to be. Like, that's when, when you get to the point where those things really, really matter, you're you're not doing well, like your organization's in a bad spot. So, I mean, hopefully it never comes to a point where, you know, the, that's a, a major consideration that we have to make. And, and they can, you know, hopefully the the idea that fit over skill is going to, to win out. I mean, I am certainly skeptical. I don't um, have the highest of hopes at the moment, but um you know i don't know i guess the 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 one thing that i kind of cling to is the idea that it is a fresh start um though at the same time one of the things we didn't really get into with with dan either is um i don't really i don't like the idea that lynch is this like old school football guy like i worry that a lot of his beliefs and and in this kind of vision that he's going to be instilling is going to be kind of outdated and that that he's kind of you hear that a lot with broadcasters right and i i haven't paid close enough attention to um you know everything that lynch is is said on broadcast or anything like that to to know how often this comes up but you do hear a lot of broadcasters that have um you know that played in the 80s 90s you know what what have you like they they say a lot of things that are like man that sounds really old like the game's not like that anymore you know the the game has moved on from what you know about football and, and I hope that we're not in that situation with Lynch like that is something that um, again I have no evidence that that supports that this is actually true it's just something that that kind of worries me going that direction yeah I mean we I, th- I think I saw someone say on Twitter that you know we needed a new defensive backs coach now that we fired Trent Balky. <laughs> so it makes sense that John Lynch is is going to be the guy. Um, oh, I, I I love the quote that, uh, that I think it was Matt Miller got this from somebody that was like, uh, just what they needed, another safety who can't cover. <laughs> yeah, that's that. That, <laughs> that, one, that was that pretty one solid. That one does hurt. Um, I mean, all in all, I think I am. I, I'm not I wouldn't even say I'm cautiously optimistic. I am. I am concerned yet optimistic. Um, and, and honestly, this is the, we haven't even talked about the fact that these are six year deals, right? These are six year deals, which means to me, you're going to give them at the, I mean, at this point, Jed York's already paying three different, I mean, that's just, that's only 1.5 years in Jed time. So, um, yeah, I think this gets them three years. I think this gets them three years, and if they don't get those, and if I think if they don't figure it out after those three years, that's when you start thinking about really starting to, to cut bait. And I think three or four years, you can. I think you really start 
you hope to start seeing the fruits of a, what I hope is going to be damn near a full roster turnover in about two, three years. Um, oh, they that, should cut like 60% of that shit this year. Like I want um, them to go through the Seattle model of just yeah, churning through the, the roster. They need it. Like um, everyone forgets that when, when Seattle, when Schneider and Carroll took over that roster, it was not in great state. It wasn't, it wasn't terrible, terrible, but it wasn't good. And they were the most active franchise in releasing and signing players. I mean, they basically turned over that like 80% of that roster, except for a couple blue chip players that they eventually flipped when they got their core young pe- uh, people. Um, and, and, and they were just constantly trying to find guys. That's what the Niners need to do. And, and I don't know that they will, but they need to just cut a bunch of people, know that, that things are going to suck and try and find players. Yeah, I mean, that's the way that, like, you want them to go out and use cap space, right? Everybody's like, oh, my God, they have all this cap space. Let's go sign people. Like, they shouldn't be going after, you know, a a Kirk Cousins if he becomes available or any of these guys at the top of the market. Like, the way that they need to approach this is, again, right now you need to cut bait with a lot of players currently under the roster. The guys that are hitting, you know, unrestricted free agency this year, there's not a single one of them on that list that is worth keeping around, that is a difference maker, that's going to be somebody that propels you to your next good team. Um, it's just not, like, they're, they're not there. So you need to let those guys go, and then the guys that you, obviously you need bodies. You need to end up with a 90-man roster and eventually pare that down. Um, but that's where your free agent money comes in. You can't get that many guys through the draft. You need to be signing kind of these mid-tier, you know, guys that are just kind of filler all your either short-term deals or their deals where all the money's up front, right? You put them all, all the caps, you eat up all this cap space by putting all the guaranteed money up front. Um, and then that, with that, that's kind of like the, the Raiders model did this as well, right? Like they had um, so many bad contracts and everything. And when they finally got out of that and had a lot of cap space to work with, they didn't go blow it all. They, they kind of like, okay, we need bodies while we build through the draft here, but we're not going to sign any contracts that put us in a poor situation long-term. And, and I think that's, the approach that I'd like to see from them, um, you know, over this off season and then, you know, probably into to next off season as well. Um, but you know, obviously a lot of, a lot of questions to be answered between now and then. Well, I think that, you know, th- this is definitely uh, not a, not a place we anticipated being in, but it's going to be an interesting, an interesting, interesting ride. And again, I, I do wish John Lynch the best, despite his, ridiculous thoughts about Seattle not being a zone run team under Marshawn Lynch. Um, and, okay. and I do, I do hope that it does turn out well, because again, I do think Kyle Shanahan, it it was an easy one to McDaniel Shanahan for us. And then a list of everyone else. Yeah. So we got one of the top two candidates um, and, and John Lynch, who the hell knows where he came out of, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to do a bad job. Even if there are a couple of leading indicators that, that don't look terribly promising. Um, all in all, it was a completely ridiculous process that, and, and I think to call it a pro, we can't, I don't think we should call it a process. It was, <laughs> it was a something. It was a fucking shit show. Well, think of a word. It was a, um, it was a parade of candidates in no way, shape or form related to a process that may eventually net out two good people, hopefully two good people that can, that can turn the team around and do something good with it because, if they can do that, awesome. We are happy as clams. But um, at least on the general manager front, there's some definite concern and some reservations about his ability to do the job when he's never held a job like it before in his life. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's I think, kind of where we're at. I don't really, uh, 
know what else to say at this point. I mean, it's it's uh, it's been a frustrating process. Um, I'm I'm am happy that it's done. Like I'm I'm happy that we don't really have to worry yeah. about me too. Um, do going through this search any longer and having to uh, listen to Jed York say absolutely anything at all. Um, so yeah, I mean, it'll it'll be interesting. I mean, um, one thing we didn't get a chance to talk about with Dan is is this idea. I don't you know I I do wonder how much change we're going to see right away when it comes to things like the roster or whatever else, just because they're the situation that they're in right now, it's going to be hard for them to make any significant changes in the front office and with the scouting department until after the draft. I mean, the idea right now that's being floated around already is that Gamble's going to kind of run the show and, and be kind of the point person on a lot of this stuff through the draft. And then, and after that ends when we'll, we'll start to see um, any sort of changes that they're going to make long-term. So um, it'll be in, interesting to follow for sure. All right. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about what the schedule is going to look like because I think that wraps it up for this week's edition. We we brought it to you a couple days early because we know some of y'all were clamoring for it. But what does the schedule look like over the course of the next couple of weeks? Um, obviously, this Sunday is the Super Bowl, and shortly thereafter, we'll probably make an announcement that we've hired Kyle Shanahan to a six-year deal, matching good old John Weird Eared Lynch. Have you seen his ears, by the way? He's got like weird elf ears. It's like oh, Shrek I, Elf. <laughs> Luckily, I had a... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, there was a picture on the uh, the old timeline. And, man, you're not you're not wrong. I'm telling you, dude. It's Yeah, he's got weird, weird ears. But um, we're going to definitely do a podcast on uh, either Monday or Tuesday, immediately after the Super Bowl, after the head coaching hire. And then this guy, uh, one Mr. Oscar, is leaving for a vacation. I'm going to Mexico for a week. Uh, for my wife's 30th birthday, actually. she And we're going to go to a, a four-day concert in Mexico for our favorite band, uh, the Avet Brothers. But then we get back, and it is full off-season mode. We have lots of shows and lots of wonderful things prepped for uh, the next off-season. We're going to get definitely get into Kyle Shanahan's offense. We're going to talk about what we've been covering at the Scouting Academy. We're going to apply that to what we see in the draft and who we think the best uh, players for the 49ers are going to be in the draft. We're going to talk about free agency. Um, we're, you know, we're going to basically do it all, all the way leading up to and through the draft. Um, and uh, and yeah, and basically have a full off season's worth of content for you. Still coming at you most weeks, every week uh, through the draft, and, and then after that, we'll probably switch more to a, a irregular cadence. But but yeah, I'm uh, I'm pretty pumped about the off season. We we spent yesterday this weekend setting up. Uh, what the content schedule looked like so yeah i'm I'm pretty excited yeah it's gonna be i mean it's it's kind of crazy to think that uh i mean the free agency starts basically a month after like the 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 super bowl and you know obviously we'll get the combine the week right before then we'll start to get some rumors of of things happening so there's not uh really much in the way of downtime um you know until things really start picking up in the the bulk of the off season there so uh it's gonna be fun i like this portion because Honestly, it, it gives us a chance to kind of look at things outside of the organization. Like, obviously, we always tie it back to, to kind of what it means for the Niners, but you get to spend some time, you know, watching guys in free agency, watching these draft picks, and um, doing some other things that uh, don't drive you completely insane, like the 49ers do sometimes. Yeah. So that about does it. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. You can always follow me at Better Rivals. Uh, David, where can they follow you? That's going to be at David Newman with an underscore. 
at that damn underscore. So again, thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you do leave those reviews on the iTunes, uh, then it helps other people find the show. Uh, so definitely leave us some ratings if you like what you hear. Thanks again to Dan Hatman, who came on the show again to, to talk general manager stuff. And as always, go Niners. Hey everybody, it's Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge. I host a podcast every week called The Verge Cast with my friends Paul Miller and Dieter Bone. We've got a rotating cast of characters from our entire site, which is about technology, how it impacts culture, and how that is all a big cycle that causes us to have a wide variety of feelings that you can listen to every Friday. We've done over 300 episodes in the six years since The Verge has been around, but you only need to listen to one, the latest one, to get caught up on everything in tech news. Vergecast is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else. Also, you listen to podcasts, check it out.